Hey, this is Luke Baker, and you're listening to the Tea Talks Podcast. I gather people in my living room and have my friends give short talks on anything they find interesting. We sip on tea, eat Pop-Tarts, and cultivate a community of curiosity. These are those talks recorded live in my living room with my friends. Hope you enjoy. Same central movement of Till We Have Faces, I map onto and say is the same as the same central movement of the Harry Potter series, that Harry is learning through all seven books to navigate the world through these two different worldviews as embodied by his good friend, the intellectual, the smart one, the smartest witch of her age, Hermione, who gets all the love, and Ron, who's kind of the dunce of the story most of the time. Welcome back, Tea Talkies. It's been a long time. It's actually been 16 months since I've published an episode of Tea Talks, which, a COVID 16 months, feels like three years. And during that time, a lot has obviously happened. I quickly learned that something I had to do to help myself stay healthy was choose some things to not happen. So, unfortunately, Tea Talks was one of those things. People couldn't come to my house to have Pop-Tarts and hear my friends give delightful talks. And I didn't make podcast episodes well, because staying in my bedroom on a computer after a day of work was becoming less appealing as the pandemic spread. Thankfully, time and vaccines heal most wounds. In the past two months, we've hosted two tea talks at my house. But before I get to releasing those, I wanted to kick off season three with an older talk I never got around to editing. It's by my friend Benji. Before I give Benji the mic... I want to give you a preface of why Tea Talks is coming out of hibernation with this particular talk. One of the best things that came from me saying no to more screen time in the pandemic was saying yes to more book time. I've long enjoyed a good book, but in 2020, I was able to enjoy a lot of them, more than I ever have. My favorite of them all was called Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. It's a moving fiction book that retells a myth. I won't spoil much more but I know many others found comfort in reading during COVID. And at first, I felt like we were all reading books about making the most of our lives and starting that business and making that money and dating that person. But then we got tired, and we moved toward classic stories that helped us escape our world for comfort elsewhere. I think that's why I've met so many people who have read or reread Harry Potter over the past 18 months. It's familiar, yet it's magical. Benji gave a talk on Till We Have Faces and Harry Potter in 2019 before I read them. I recently went back to listen to his talk and knew I had to turn it into a podcast. I hope these 20 minutes will give you an escape to the familiar while also giving you a fresh perspective of some of our favorite tales. So, without further ado, welcome back to Tea Talks. My favorite fan fiction author is J.K. Rowling on Twitter. But my second favorite fan fiction author is actually C.S. Lewis, um, a little-known fantasy writer. You may have, he copied J.K. Rowling a lot with a lot of his thematic <laughs> stuff. Um, he wrote a book called Till We Have Faces. It's his retelling of the backstory of an ancient mythological story about Cupid and Psyche, which is really fantastic if you have a chance to check it out. It's not very long, but C.S. Lewis read it 
in college. He read it throughout his life, near the end of his life. He had always felt unsettled about it, and he wrote this book to give perspective to explain what some of the lesser known characters would have done. So they had some actions, and they did some things that were we would look at as deceitful, but he said these people haven't had a voice. I'm going to write a fanfic novel for them. I don't think he called it that, but that's exactly what it is. So I'm not going to talk too much about that book because there's so much, but I'm going to talk about the central movement of that book, which is why I wanted to give the talk. The central movement of Till We Have Faces is of the main character, whose name is very hard to pronounce, but I'm going to go with Orul. It's, uh, it's about her learning to navigate reality by using these two different worldviews embodied by two characters. One is rationalism, the scientific, physical approach of observation and thinking and logic. It's embodied in a Greek man named the Fox, who is her teacher through her whole through the whole story in life. He's very he is the intellectual of her life. And on the other side, there's a tension between him and this guy named Bardia, which is totally a real name. Name your child that. Um, and he is very much a product of his culture. They live in a world called Gloam that has its own religion and its superstitions and these beliefs and histories and stories about where they came from and they have kings and things. And the fact that kings were so relevant in our world for so long just blows my mind. The fact that we still have them. I'm like, that's clearly a flawed system. Why are they still here? Either way. Um, Bardia is a product of his culture, and you could say that he believes the stories that he's told, and he lives his life by them. He lives his life by the stories that he's told about his royal family, that he serves. He's a guard. He's in the, in the military. He's a soldier, um, and he lives his life by the religion that he's taught, by the priests that teach him what is moral and what is not moral and what is good and what is bad, and this is why you should plant your plants in this row and not that row and whatever. When he's very good at it, and uh, and these both these men, the fox and Bardia, are both virtuous, and that creates a tension because they don't see the world the same way. And Orul, through the whole life, her whole life, is trying to navigate this tension because she cares about both of them. You could say that she loves both of them in different ways, but they do not get along. They butt heads, there's, they disagree. She goes to one and asks for advice, and he says to do the opposite of the thing that the other asked. And the fox is like, use observation, use science. The world is ordered. Understand the order and live your life by it. Do things that are practical. And Bardi is like, listen to the gods and do what they say. That's it. You don't have to know why it works or how it works or whatever. You have to, he says, this is the way that we do things here. That's just enough. And sometimes she does Bardi's way, sometimes she does the fox. Um, and by the end of the story, which is wonderful and beautiful and everyone should read it. I loved it so much. I read it the whole book out loud to my wife. It was great. It was the third time I read it, and it was the best time. And, and she loved it, right? Confirmed. Confirmed. But by the end of this book, Orul is able to integrate these two worldviews represented by the characters who, in the story, in one way or another, make peace with each other. And Orul is able to live in peace with this tension. She understands the value of both things and how leaning too far on one side or the other can cause problems. 
just like taking things too far <laughs> generally does. Um, my older brother says, if something's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. If a horse is worth beating, it's worth beating to death. So that's very easy to me, for me to imagine. I'm like, yeah, I grew up with a guy that took things too far. And sometimes he was great because <laughs> we live in America. We live in the land of Enneagram threes, if that means anything to you. <laughs> and we live in a world of, it's built on science. We're, we, our roots are in Greek philosophy of observing the world, seeing the order and manipulating it to our benefit. That's why we live in the place that we live with the amount of material goods that we live in, why we have so much power that we have because we've doubled down on the practical, on the intellectual, on the philosophical that says things matter because we can measure it, we can quantify it. Who uses Excel for work? Who knows that if you are good at Excel, you have more prestige in the workplace? Amen. I have zero prestige. I feel very bad. <laughs> so that cultural assumption is true for us. And I'm so thankful that C.S. Lewis had the wisdom that he let that tension exist in O'Rule's life and let us sit through it for a few hundred pages and kind of ha be forced to think about it. Because it's a no-brainer, of course, right? It's like, clearly, go with the Greek guy. He knows how to do things. He's, he's sciency, And discount the guy that has the story. But I'm here to make a case for Bardia tonight. Well, kind of. We'll get to Zen and the Art of Ron, Swans Ron Weasley in a second. <laughs> Not Ron Swanson, no. Um, that would be Ron Swanson and the Art of Ron Swanson. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the benefit of Bardia that he gives to O'Rule in his life, well, the benefit of the fox is that he teaches O'Rule how to live practically in the now and master skills and make decisions in the short run and then through time but always in the short run it's like when you have a problem you solve it it's very direct object subject oriented and bardia was not the source of his contribution bardia believed the stories and told them to o'rule he lived the stories and told them to o'rule and that was his great gift to o'rule is that he let her in to the context of her culture and he didn't have to understand how it worked, but he taught her to navigate the people that she lived in. The world that she lived in made up of people who are living in this fictional world called religion or superstition or myth or whatever you want to call it. Whether or not it's true, she had to learn how to navigate it. And he gave her companionship and friendship and things that are very hard to quantify and hard to prove. It's easy to discount the value of things you can't measure. And that's why we discount the value of companionship, of community, and being clued in to context. Because more, when you're raising kids, they say more is caught than taught. And that plenty of parents have great like nuggets that they tell their kids and the kids hate it. But the great, the virtues of the parents that rub off on the kids, those are the things you're proud of. Those are the things that really get embodied in them. And that's what good parents do is that they, they rub off on their kids in good ways as much as possible. Um, so I'm really thankful for C.S. Lewis that he would let us live in this tension for a while. Seriously, everyone go read the book and then come talk to me about it. Um,
Which brings us to Harry Potter, of course. And so the first thing I want to say about Harry Potter is that, one, it is not science fiction. I don't think anyone thought that, but I want to clarify that it is not science fiction because science fiction is something brilliant, but it is not. Science fiction, you take our world, you change a variable about science, like there's time travel or there's space travel or there's lightsabers or something, and you see how it plays out. But it's based on our world and it follows the mechanics and the physics of our world. And that's how you can appreciate it. And it's wonderful. Harry Potter is not that. Harry Potter is a symbolic story. And if you do not appreciate it on a symbolic level, I think you really miss out on some of the central movements and the very significant elements that J.K. Rowling was able to weave through into the story. So the example of this I'm giving to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm right about Harry Potter. <laughs> no, I'm not, probably, but this is, this is a good talk. It's cool that Harry Potter got to wrestle his letter out of, out of his acceptance letter, letter out of his uncle's hands in his kitchen. That's cool. He's great. He, he had to jump on the back of this big, kind of fat, weird, slow-moving thing, and he took the letter out of his hand, and that's great. This is the beginning of the first book. At the end of the first book, Harry is in the girl's bathroom trying to fight a troll with Ron and Hermione, and he jumps on the back of this big, weird, heavy, slow-moving, dumb thing, and, and through you know help of his friends, conquers it. That's cool. But what's deep is understanding them together, and that when you fight small things when, that you can handle, eventually you find friends and you fight bigger things together that you wouldn't be able to handle by yourself. That's the message. That's the thing that needs to rub off on us. That's the greatness of Harry Potter is that it rubs off and you get inspired about something and you don't need to be able to like, you know, slice and dice it to be like, this is the thing that is motivating me to do this. It's like, you just love it and you get inspired by it. So it's a symbolic story, not science fiction. And I think understanding the symbolism of Harry Potter allows us to understand that the same central movement of Till We Have Faces I map onto and say is the same as the same central movement of the Harry Potter series, that Harry is learning through all seven books to navigate the world through these two different worldviews as embodied by his good friend, the intellectual, the smart one, the smartest witch of her age, Hermione, who gets all the love, and Ron, who's kind of the dunce of the story most of the time. Most of the people I talk to about her, about Harry Potter don't ever mention Ron as someone that they like, but Hermione is always the hero because she's intellectual, she's smart, she's practical, she solves problems, she saves the day. I had one friend tell me that she thought Hermione was actually the central character of the whole series. And I was developing this talk, so I thought, how could you think that? <laughs> how could you think something that I don't think? I know. But I'm here to make a case for Bardia, and I'm here to make a case for Ron and really to say that when we are uncomfortable with Ron having the position in the story that he does and the position in Harry's life that he does, it reveals a deep insecurity about allowing ourselves to be moved by story, be moved by culture, and be moved by myth. Because in this 21st century, we feel obligated to slice and dice and quantify and say, this is why I'm doing this. And we're not free to just be moved I love that people are talking more about story, but 
the power of story in a presentation is more than just relabeling your si slides to be chapters. That's not the power of story. The power of story is admitting that story is more powerful than our science on the long run. And I would say that story and myth, and you could call it culture, if culture is the story we tell, or culture is the story that we live, that story is humankind's way of collecting, refining, and transmitting deep, complex wisdom that we can't directly understand, but we can embody, and we can pass on, and we can live according to. And as we go, and as we are free not to crystallize it, we're able to make progress because we can live in a context and then make incremental moves forward. So... The point of this talk, I guess I would say, is that I want you to go out and be free of the obligation to explain yourself when you're reading fiction, to be free of the obligation to explain yourself when you're going to look at art or just go on a walk and have a nice day and that understand that it takes humility to be moved by something that you can't explain and understand that that is what has pushed us forward as humans. If we're getting better, it's because we can build and refine the story that we're all living in. Thank you. Thanks so much, Benji, for bringing back Tea Talks with such a thoughtful talk. And thank you all for giving it a listen. If you wouldn't mind, would you just leave a review? Uh, it helps the listeners and more people would just find the show. And since we haven't done an episode in a while, uh, a little more people talking about it would help it out. And the good news is, there's still four or five episodes I s never edited from before the pandemic. And there were six new talks given over the past two events. So, with that being said, you can expect about ten more podcast episodes to be built in the near future. But until then, stay curious and stay kind. Mm -hmm.